in general that we could try to do a better job of highlighting all of the positives that we're always doing instead of always having to come back and be, la- and be on the defensive side of things. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. DSM Furmanish. Mycotoxins can threaten feed and cattle performance. DSM Furmanish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and it is my pleasure today to introduce Holly Heil, who is a beef cattle nutritionist with Ackerman Ag Services and Supply, contributing there to their beef nutrition needs in Nebraska. She earned her uh, Master's of Science degree from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2022, which is something I know we're going to talk a little bit about today. So welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, we always kind of start with helping our audience understand how you got to this point um, in your career. And so tell us your story. What, how did you get involved in the beef industry? So I've always kind of had a passion for farming and animals. So I'm originally from central Nebraska. So I kind of grew up um, helping my family um, in that aspect. And so they were mostly, you know, the farming based side of things. And so Um, One way I wanted to help contribute to my family is, you know, well, I want to learn about more of the cow-calf side and beef side. So kind of keeping that in the back of my mind, you know, growing up, um, that's kind of what I wanted to do as, you know, the end-term career, um, long-term goal in that aspect. So um, I went to school and got my animal science degree and then, um, you know, really just... uh, Got to go and do some hands-on experience, you know, working at some other different cow-calf operations and feedlots, um, and then had, you know, my opportunity to get my master's in nutrition. Um, And so I just graduated last year with that. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting, and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. So before we talk about some of the work that you did there at UNL, tell us a little bit about some of the experiences that you had, because you said you worked on some cow-calf operations, and you had some different feedlot experiences, and that, as my understanding, is kind of what drove you to be interested in going on for a graduate degree, right? Yes. So after graduation, um, I I would say, you know, between, you know, bachelor's and master's, I was kind of, you know, um, a non-traditional student in that way. So I actually worked out in industry for three years. Um, and so a lot of people don't necessarily know that. They just thought, you know, continue on with school. Um, so, yeah. So I just kind of, you know, found different jobs working with um, 
just any kind of producers, you know, um, you know, cow calf side. Um, I did uh, at the end of my bachelor's, the UNL feedlot management internship program. And so that actually got me placed at a feedlot between Lincoln and Omaha, um, Riggs Farms Enterprises. And so I actually was an intern there. And then all, that led into um, a full time position. And I was there for a little over two years, closer to two and a half years. And so they did cow-calf. They also did backgrounding feedlot. And then they also had their own specialty meat store. So I got to be involved in all those different sectors within that. So sometimes when undergrads come to me and they're starting to think about graduate school, honestly, often after they have decided the vet school route is not going to be a thing for them, <laughs> either because they really hate OCHEM, can't pass OCHEM, or have decided that there's the life outside of veterinary medicine, which is always exciting for us to get those kids into grad school. Um, my advice is usually, you know, go straight into grad school out of undergrad because you're kind of carrying that momentum with you. Mm -hmm. But I've also had some students who have come in who have had, you know, one, two, three years, some of like feed sales experience or other things like that. And they definitely bring a different level of maturity to the grad office and to kind of a, a different level of understanding of what we really need to be learning in graduate school. So if you could go back, what would that be about five years or so? If you could go back and say, you know, I'd like to go straight into grad school, would you do that? Or did you think that that kind of applied experience was really invaluable in setting you up for success? I would say probably in the moment, I would have truly wanted to do just go into graduate school. But looking back now that I'm really glad that I did have those few years off, because I think that like you said, going back then um, to graduate school, you have that different level of maturity and different maybe perspective and understanding that I had a lot more opportunities, you know, hands-on opportunities versus someone that hasn't had that um, just within, you know, school. So I was actually able to, to apply a lot of, you know, that I'd had a lot of application side of it. But then going back and be knowing and understanding, you know, maybe this is why we actually do it and have some more of that training. Um, but I don't regret having those three years off um, with school because I think it just kind of gave me another fresh start. Um, going back, though, to school mode was a little bit challenging, um, just like being back in a classroom. But um I wouldn't say that that wasn't anything that I regret doing. So, I mean, it worked out for me. Everyone is different. So, yeah, I think there's a ton of value in having some of the, what would be the right way to say that? It? Like, it's like you have this scaffolding for where your knowledge is going to fit after you mm -hmm. finish graduate school already in place because you've seen some of that. And especially in the beef industry, we've talked to lots of guests who, like myself, didn't necessarily have the day-to-day -day of growing up on a beef operation, but we had extended family who had cattle, or we have some students now, right? Like we get a lot of students at Iowa State who come from the suburbs in Illinois that have never had anything larger than a cat or a dog. <laughs> and yet we turn them into farm kids, we turn them into beef kids, but they don't have the practical background. So it's really cool that you kind of had that I mean, you had that already from being, you know, raised in a beef and farming operation, but you also got to see, what am I going to do when I understand what NDF is and, you know, other things, right? Like with your exactly. nutrition background. Yep, exactly. And so, I mean, even when I was in undergrad, I did work for the Ruminant Nutrition Lab. Um, so I got a little bit of experience and that was kind of, you know, what I would say a little taste of graduate school, but not on the same level, right? Um, but I got to help a little bit um, with all the other grad students and then, you know, 
going out and like, oh, this is what this kind of means, you know, like putting the pieces together and then full swing uh, coming back and actually doing it for myself. So I think one of the things we learn a lot once we get out into industry as well is how many different types of disciplines we have to work with. So it's not like you're just a nutritionist surrounded by other nutritionists. You're also working with uh, the vet and you're maybe working with the the business you know person or, or other things like that. And I think you got some of that kind of uh, integrated experience, I guess we'll call it, as a part of your graduate degree as well. Yes. I kind of just did anything they asked me to, you know, and I mean, um, that was, you know, managing other students or managing my own projects. But even within um, my career and industry between um, schooling, um, I had different levels of responsibility and um, just kind of always tried to put what I could bring to the table and like help everybody else out. And just like what I knew that what my strong suits were that I could use that as an advantage to maybe, um, you know, help facilitate some of that. So, so why don't you tell our listeners about um, maybe one of your projects in particular? So I think you kind of got to, I think you described it in our pre-recording session here. You called it Precision Livestock Bootcamp. Tell us <laughs> a little bit about what that project was um, like, who you were working with and, you know, what you were working with on that project. Okay. So going into my master's, you know, ruminant nutrition, you know, nutrition based. So different feeds, products, um, feed additives, all of that. Um, what I didn't know that one of my projects was going to be was precision livestock technology and integrating that within cattle. Um, so I got to work with Dr. E.G. Shang at UNL. And so that was something that was completely new to me. So like I said, I was like, I got a crash course um, on precision livestock talk technology bootcamp. Um, so we uh, were learning um, how GPS components work, or specifically I was, um, and how GPS can be used to track cattle. So I got to spend three summers <laughs> tracking cattle, and I could be about anywhere, and I could open my laptop and be like, oh, all my cattle are in this portion of the pasture. They look good. So um, that's kind of in a nutshell without going into too much detail on that side. But yes, got to work with some of that technology. So can you tell us, um, I don't know if you, can you share like what the kind of equipment was that you were working with? Was that from a specific company or was it something that EG was, you know, building herself there? I know she's got some things that that group has been working on. Um, what are they? Ag biosystems? They're, they have a little different department name than we do at Iowa State. Yep. I can't quite remember exactly <laughs> just because it's, kind of technical. It's ag, um, bioengineering, something, yeah, something on yeah. there. I'm not, I'm not exactly, I probably misspoke, but, um, yeah. So you actually can buy the sensors online. Um, specifically we used, um, uh, Yabby sensors, uh, were the newer sensors we used. We had some other ones, they were called the I got you sensors. Um, and so we did kind of a comparison. So, you know, um, they had different price points of the sensors and then, you know, a different settings you can um, use for different applications. And so we just wanted to try to do a testing, which is the best sensor, right? That we can get the most accurate readings. So um, GPS, you know, within farming, um, planting, things like that, farmers have very expensive, you know, GPS equipment, right? And so there's different subscriptions and packages um, how, you know, what your variation can be a couple inches to, you know, maybe half an inch. And so that's kind of what our um, application was, is how 
accurate and, you know, precise we can get our sensors, you know, um, within this type of tracking. And so that's kind of what uh, I worked on um, and just kind of understanding the GPS sensors and trying to track them in a grazing situation um, itself. So if I think about, you know, cows and like extensive range systems and things like that, it would be really handy to know where my cows are, but I probably don't need to know where my cows are to within an inch or maybe even to within 20 yards, right? Because if I can be like, well, she's generally in this part of the pasture, or if I'm going to look for her because I haven't seen her in a while, or she hasn't, the dot hasn't moved in a while and I'm going to check, I can probably see the cow once I get close enough. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you guys thought about as you were doing your research? Like, does it matter how, you know, obviously if you're applying precision nitrogen, you know, when you're fertilizing in a cornfield, you want to be precise to the inches, but how does that apply to the cow side? Yep. So we did think about that. For us, we wanted to make sure, you know, we wanted to be within, you know, a few feet. We didn't have to be, you know, super um, close, but we wanted to be sure, you know, maybe three, four feet, not necessarily maybe, you know, 10, 20 feet, because then you're starting to really, you know, extrapolate that data, you know, that it can, you know, try to have, you know, a little bit more of an effect, you know, in that way. Uh, what we were trying to do is trying to locate animals and then um, use that towards where they were at within a footprint um, and trying to apply that for emissions portions and how much they were contributing in a grazing system. So knowing where they were at in a pasture was critical, but it wasn't um, the biggest point of knowing precisely what they were at. So... Okay. Yeah. And if it is pretty accurate, like, you know, would, would you be able to use that for like selectivity work when it comes to grazing, like knowing, you know, this plant is in that area. So that's what that cow was eating. Or is that too much extrapolation? Cause you don't actually know like that they, ate that particular plant and there might be another plant next to it. I think there is a little bit of work on that. Um, I mean, we didn't necessarily look at that, but, um, I think that they do kind of use that as like selectivity, um, a management tool in that way, um, knowing if cattle spend this much time, you know, in this corner, why is that going out and looking, okay, well, there's, uh, this type of grass that they're eating more, um, that it was gone. And then they're moving on towards maybe this other area. It just doesn't have that with selectivity. Um, so there is a little bit of work on that, but I mean, it is, it is a useful management tool in that way of trying to do different kind of grazing strategies. As you think about somebody, you know, that you've worked in this precision livestock technology space, is there something that's coming down the pipe that you're really particularly interested in, especially now that you're out in industry? Are you seeing something that, you know, your customers are adopting or there's a need for something that needs to be created because they'd be ready to snap that up if it was available and affordable? Yeah. So affordable is always, you know, key with producers. Um, but I do know a few clients around, so I'm out in the sand hills now. So, um, I mean, you have large ranches, you have large, you know, pastures. And so what they're kind of looking towards is that, well, maybe if I'm able to track a few of my animals, so they're looking at the GPS just to know where they're at. Um, and then also some of the virtual fencing. So, I mean, um, because these are large ranches, uh, you know, there's not highways or cars that are driving up and down the roads constantly, right? So if they can have at least um, some of their animals in or like at least have that perimeter fencing with the virtual fencing um, system. Um, I know a few people that have tried it in the past summer um, 
And that's still, you know, under the works and they're, you know, trying to, you know, always improve that system um, because it is relatively new. Um, but that's something that's more that, you know, people out here would be able to benefit that from if they're not able to always go out um, and spend hours, you know, trying to locate, make sure that they're in their, you know, certain area and region. Um, but I also have had just in general GPS, they're um, just tracking animals too. So I think one of the interesting potential applications that I've seen it in like Australia and some other countries where they have tags on the animals um, mm-hmm. and they're locating them prior to say like a natural disaster of some sort. And obviously a lot of natural disasters, like when we had the derecho and other things, like mm-hmm. you got no warning about that for the most part. And maybe a tornado, you wouldn't have warning. But if you think about like, you know, cattle in the Southern part of the U.S. that might experience a hurricane or thinking about a blizzard up in this part of the country in the Northern Plains and knowing, you know, if animals move someplace that they shouldn't have during that storm, being able to quickly locate them right and provide feed resources that could be pretty invaluable oh i agree yes um yep and i under i know what um kind of tags you're talking about and i think that is also just another instead of you know having the bulky collar around their neck you know a simple tag that's what we do um every single day so that's um another application and a different type of sensor and that is something that producers could easily implicate and um put into practice within their own systems. So we talked a little bit about the fact that you had some industry experience and then obviously um, a practical beef background before you went to grad school. And But then coming out of graduate school always kind of feels like a bit of a shock to the system too, right? Like all the things that you said were hard about going from full-time industry to full-time student again, it now happens in reverse. So maybe can you do a little reflection for us and think, you know, if you were giving advice to current graduate students who want to get a job in industry, what's some of the things that maybe you wish you would have done more or maybe thought more um, intentionally about while you were in grad school, maybe set you up for that success? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess during my grad school time, I would say, um, was a little bit different than normal. Um, so when I started is when the pandemic hit. So a lot of things were shut down for my first two years. So I wasn't able to maybe necessarily uh, go out to conferences and travel um, and then connect with other universities, um, just people, professionals within the industry. Um, so I think towards the end of my graduate school career, you know, um, that made it a little bit tougher because I didn't get to actually immerse myself um, prior to being done with school. So, I mean, as a student, let you're in grad school, (laughs) I mean, it's stressful enough as it is trying to balance your classwork, um, your research and everything else in life. But I would just make sure, you know, that you're aware of that. Take the chance and the opportunity to go out and travel and to meet those people and connect because you find out that the industry actually is pretty small. And so like once you are out that there's a lot of people that you remember um, and that you probably connect with them later on down the road. And so I guess that would be the biggest tip um, is to really make sure that you make those connections during your time because they will be the ones that you're going to be dealing with. Um, within your career. Yeah. I I didn't really think about your timing, but yeah, I don't envy anybody who started or finished or went through the bulk of their graduate program during the pandemic timeframe. That was really hard. I have a graduate student who um, we 
she was supposed to come in August of 2020. And I was like, I don't know, it was like February 1st. And I was like, hey, why don't you come in May? We can start your project early. It'll be great. Mm-hmm. And of course, she came in May. And, you know, we had the pandemic that really started in like March 2020. And um, it was like a year later, and we were having a conversation about something. And it just like hit me between the eyes that this kid had had a totally different first year experience than literally everyone else. We were talking about some things. And I was like, okay, we're back in the office now. This is going to be so different. And I I remember being, it's kind of like the freshmen, right? The freshmen of 2020, Mm -hmm. when they came back as sophomores in 2021, they were basically freshmen all over. They had never been to campus. It was like we had two freshman classes that year on campus. And we actually, so this is the fall of, or this is the early part of 2024 as we're recording this, but I just finished teaching advanced nutrition in the fall. And I realized those were the kids who came in as freshmen in 2020. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just crazy to think about the fact that that was even three and a half years ago at this point. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I kind of almost forgot about it, but I was like, you know, I mean, that last year, I'm like, wow, we actually get to go out and travel. And I was like, this is what normal grad school was supposed to look like. And so, um, I mean, I did get to travel that last year. I got to go to, um, San Antonio, um, Orlando, um, some of those, you know, Omaha for the conferences and things like that. But I mean, as far as in general, um, that was something that I love traveling itself. So I mean, that at least I got to that last year, but that was that was supposed to be, you know, kind of the normal. So are there pieces of advice or things that you would tell students as they're getting ready to transition into the industry? Um, You know, what are some of the things, the tactics that you've tried to put into place to be successful as you get started? You know, you've been out for a year and a half now or so, and it's like, okay, so you're probably just starting to feel like you're getting your feet underneath you. I don't think, (laughs) yes. So I don't know if you necessarily feel that you're always, you know, prepared or you try to always prepare for everything, right? Um, I guess as far as for me, you know, I just, you know, for trying to have as many connections as possible. And so really trying to um, key in on what you really want to do, because you have to wake up and you want to do it every single day. Right. Um, And so that for me, that was more of, you know, kind of the ration formulations consulting, but being able to travel. Um, And so within my job, that's exactly what I get to do. Um, So I get to talk to producers, meet with them, have some office time, but then also being able to travel. Um, so it's kind of the perfect combination in all um, aspects and that and just, you know, uh, learning from one of the best, in my opinion, and, um, within my boss. And so, uh, you know, I guess the biggest tip for me is like as in coming back out is that you just always have to be on your A game, but also at the same time, uh it's really goes back down to that networking. And so as like, as that last six, eight months, as you're transitioning out is to know, you know, this is exactly what I want to do. And then go find out um, with industry, someone that you could see yourself doing that job. And that's the people that you want to um, talk to. And then that would lead into, you know, maybe some other opportunities and they're going to surround themselves with successful people. So that's just kind of the approach that I took anyways. So I think that's really good advice, Holly, and so true that like 
it's the beef industry is such a small world. I mean, it's you don't have to have six degrees of Kevin Bacon in this industry, right? It's about two degrees and you can find somebody that went to school with somebody or, you know, is their actual nutritionist or something like that. Like mm-hmm. I had a former advisee email me last week and was like, hey, we're in the we're looking for a new nutritionist. Do you have recommendations? And so I could, you know, quickly be like, here's the cell phone for three different people that are, you know, connections that I have through Iowa State that I think would be great for you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the connection. And I love that idea of finding the person who has the job that you want mm-hmm. and going and seeing like, how did they get that job? And being willing, I think especially sometimes young people now think that they should jump right to that position and not kind of have that sort of apprenticeship that's necessary to build the skills. And that's a really important part too, right? To come in with the book knowledge, but understanding that some of the application part kind of has to be learned on the ground. And so it sounds like you had a cool experience with that, with coming in with some of that before you started grad school and then now kind of learning under, it sounds like a good mentor there at Ackerman and stuff. So that's great. Yep. And so I completely agree with you. So, um, Yeah, you just really have to surround yourself with the people that, you know, what your definition of success is, and that that would lead into, you know, they're going to better you in a positive way for you to be successful and what your goals and, you know, aspirations are as a career and what you want to do. This is kind of a weird question, but it's the beginning of the year as we're recording this and it's been (laughs) on my mind a lot lately. So let me ask you this, Holly. If you could make a 2024 goal for the beef industry, what do you think it would be? That's a tough one. Um, I think, I guess, as an overarching goal for like just in general, I would say, um, I guess one of the biggest things that I think about is that I feel that the beef industry almost sometimes gets a negative light that we are always maybe defending ourselves a little bit um, instead of, And always having trying to prove like we're not doing this, um, that we're actually, you know, having a positive benefit. So I think maybe in general that we could try to do a better job of highlighting all the positives that we're always doing instead of always having to come back and and be on the defensive side of things, if that makes sense. I love that. And yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. I think that's an awesome. So everybody in the beef industry, you heard it here. 2024 goal. Stop feeling like we have to defend everything that we do and get out there and tell all the good things that we do. You know, we are in this business because they wanted people wanted to raise their family here. You know, it's a margin business. Very few of us are here because we make boatloads of money on the beef side. We're here because we love to work with cattle. We love the lifestyle that it affords us even though it's a really hard lifestyle. <laughs> it definitely is. I mean, last winter was not an easy one. So hopefully we've been lucky this year for um, through the winter. So hopefully that stays true, but I don't want to, don't want to ruin that one yet. So. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't jinx us yet. It's uh, <laughs> I'm sure that we could have a polar vortex any day now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Let's not. <laughs> it's time for our famous three. Your cattle are constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. Now you can know if mycotoxins are present in your feed and what you should do about it. DSM Furmanish offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contaminations and solutions to combat those mycotoxins. Don't let mycotoxins contaminate your performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH dash NA to learn more. 
Um, well, Holly, this has been a really fun conversation. I think this will be a perfect time to kind of transition into our famous three questions. So are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. First question is, uh, what is your favorite beef-related resource? So what I usually use as beef resources, so the good old trusty NRC, um, but also I do look up a lot of extension websites, um, things like that. So, I mean, just kind of knowing what in particular areas, you know, that uh, different states might, you know, specialize in, I'll go up and look um, resources through their extension um, educators and websites that way too. I think that's a great one. Some of the, like, Oklahoma State used to have some really awesome stuff on some of their um, beef center. And I only say used to just because I haven't been there recently. I'm sure it's still great. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it differs, right? Depending on what that state's kind of specialist is really focused on or interested in, or depending like how many people they have in faculty versus educator kind of roles and stuff like it differs. But I agree, there's so much good stuff that you can go to the source of it and see and not just randomly pick it up on drovers or something. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. There's a lot of things that that's another thing. A lot of things that people can just, you know, quickly Google, get a general definition, um, but not until you kind of have more of those proven websites. Um, but then there's a lot out there. So just kind of depending on what you're specifically looking at and what kind yeah. of cable. Yeah, so true. I mean, I think like understanding that we should trust edu resources more than .com or even .org <laughs> or things like that. So maybe <laughs> definitely .org. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay. Second question. What's your favorite resource not related to beef, something that you're enjoying or consuming right now? So as we kind of talked about kind of the start of the new year, so I'm actually just started um, Atomic Habits. So that's kind of like leading into the year of, you know, kind of learning a little bit more about myself and like how some of those, you know, little small changes um, can be applied um, and make those more of a habit in my day-to-day life. So Awesome. Uh, yeah. James Clear's Atomic Habits is awesome. I love that book so much, like habit stacking. So when I pour my cup of coffee in the morning, I also then go do something that is good for me and or is a habit that I'm trying to develop. Like he's full of really great tips in there. So yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Last one is what is a trait of someone you know that you think has helped make them successful? So I would have to say, you know, within this past year, I would say that um, someone who that I admire and kind of the traits that I would look up to is actually um, my boss, Dr. Callan Ackerman. And so um, he's probably one of the most, you know, humble people that I've ever met, Um, but also that he's got some, you know, grit and perseverance, you know, um, building up his own business um, from the ground up to start and Um, just kind of seeing and just listening to his transition, you know, from, you know, starting with five clients to the client base that he has now. And then, you know, just in that confidence of just having that humble confidence, put it that way, um, and how he carries himself. And so being able to, if I could take all those traits that he has and learning underneath him, um, I mean, that's just kind of the person that I strive for to be. And so, um, hopefully I can live up to his standards. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, he's definitely been a really good role model the last, um, this past year for me. So, well, excellent. That's really great to see and, um, love those traits. I think the, the humble and confidence are not always ones that we always see together. So uh, I think that's awesome. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Well, Holly, this has been really great to chat with you here today. Thanks so much for being on the Beef Podcast Show. Yes. Thank you for having me. And hopefully we can do the beef industry some good for 2024. So love that. Love that. And uh, to our listeners, you can follow us on places like Instagram or LinkedIn. Um, You can follow me over on LinkedIn at Stephanie Hansen. And um, yeah, just everybody get off to a great start in 2024. And we'll see you next time. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.